the Lord's Prayer is going to be the theme of the next uh, number of weeks uh, throughout the Willow Park Network. So if you were to visit other campuses, they would be talking about the same thing. Um, but I, th- I, I think when we look at the Lord's Prayer, I think when we read the Lord's Prayer, and even if we recite the Lord's Prayer, it would be beneficial for us to understand the context in which we find that prayer within Matthew 6. And in my church email, I encourage people to read that whole chapter. Um, because I think we, for me, it was this prayer sits in the middle of a chapter that is full of warnings. Um, And so just to jump into the prayer without seeing how it's situated in that chapter, I think we lose a little bit of of the power, the simple beauty of the Lord's Prayer. So this morning I'm going to talk a bit more about, uh, you might say, what prayer is not. And then next week, jump into actually looking, uh, beginning our look at the Lord's Prayer. I think there are many people who have a basic understanding of prayer. That when people, whether they are religious people or not religious people, people of faith or not people necessarily of faith, they have this sort of sense that prayer is an expression that people make towards God. And many who do not necessarily address God as Father, as we have the privilege of doing as children of God, may still at times in their life call out to God in prayer. These are usually prayers or cries of desperation in the face of things that appear overwhelming, in the face of things that may seem hopeless, where you might say, God, I need a miracle of some kind in this situation. And in that sense, there are a lot of people who may never attend or come through the church doors who may on occasion in their life cry out to God. These prayers, I would say, are generally situation-specific. They are usually self-centered, and and I want to be careful when I say that, because I don't want to say that that's always wrong. But generally, when people cry out to God, it is because something is facing them personally in their life that they say, God, I need your help with, or something in their extended family or people they know are facing something for which there seems no other option but to call out for God. And often those things, in a way, are self-centered. They're about us or the people we know. And often when the situation passes, whatever that reason that caused you to call out to God passes or something happens, for many people, prayer completely stops. And they continue to go on with life. J.I. Packer um, a well-known author and man of God, when talking about prayer, said this, and he uses the phrase that it's a problem for many today. He wrote this book, I think, in the late 70s. I would say that it 
that problem probably still exists and maybe is even more acute. The first part he talks about people outside of God, outside of faith, people who would not embrace God as Father. And he says, praying to God is a problem for many today. Some go through the motions with no idea why. Some have exchanged prayer for quiet thought or meditation. Most, perhaps, have given up prayer entirely. Why the problem? The answer is clear. People feel a problem with prayer because of the muddle they are in about God himself. If you are uncertain whether God exists or whether he is personal or good or in control of things or concerned about ordinary folk like you and me, you are bound to conclude that praying is pretty pointless, not to say trivial, and then you won't do it. But if you believe, as Christians do, that Jesus is in fact the image of God, in other words, that God is Jesus-like in character, then you will have no such doubts and you will recognize that for us to speak to the Father and to the Son in prayer is as natural as it was for Jesus to talk to his Father in heaven or for the disciples to talk to their master during the days of his earthly ministry. I can well imagine that the disciples had many questions to ask of Jesus as they walked through life with him. Even when you read the Gospels, you will find at times that Jesus would use stories, he would use parables, he would use illustrations, and quite often the disciples who would be listening, after that was over, they would go to Jesus and ask him, okay, what, what did that mean? What was the point of that story? There are probably many questions that the disciples asked uh, that are certainly not recorded. But I'm sure that the more time they spent with Jesus, the more they began to understand that he was more than simply an impressive man or a gifted teacher. And they gradually came to understand that he was the sent one from God. That this man with whom they walked was the Messiah, Savior. But it's interesting, it wasn't until after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't until after Jesus gave them the great commission to go and speak out the good news, it wasn't until after the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and it wasn't until after the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out on the early church, did the apostles truly understand everything else that Jesus had been talking about. And the apostles began to grasp the extent of the mission that Jesus had left them with. To preach the good news of Jesus to anyone willing to listen. 
to begin to establish the kingdom of God on earth as expressed through his church. And these very ordinary, untrained men carried the mantle of Christian leadership. They became men of faith, men who once walked with Jesus because they could actually see him, feel him, and touch him, continued to be men of faith when he was no longer with them. And they became men of power, they became men of faith, and they became men of prayer. And today as we read and understand their letters recorded in the New Testament, we read them and understand them as foundational to the church, foundational to what we believe. That we aren't today seeking to add anything new to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are seeking to hang on to it, seeking to live it out and guard it within the changing culture of our day. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, when Paul spoke, he talked about guarding the teaching of the apostles, spend time in fellowship with one another as children of God, eat meals together as children of God, and pray together as the family of God. And so these uneducated men, these men who a few years earlier had said to Jesus, would you teach us to pray, became men of prayer. Partly because Jesus had given them some instructions about how to pray. When you pray, pray like this. But mostly because they had a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That prayer was a relational aspect of who they were, not a religious requirement. The disciples might say, we walked and talked with him in person while he was on earth. And we continue to walk and to talk with him in faith today as he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. As I thought about the disciples, and I, I don't know certainly what their life would have been as they grew up as children or young men, but prayer would not likely have been foreign to them. Likely, most of them would have come from a Jewish background where prayer would have been part of the life that they observed around them from a young, early age. They probably heard prayers recited in the temple. Uh, they may very well have observed religious leaders praying on street corners. They knew prayer was part of their religious life. But beyond that, as they walked and talked with Jesus, they also observed Jesus praying. They knew that there were many times in the life of Jesus where he would leave people, the crowds, and go and spend time 
with his father. I think it's one of the expressions of what it meant for Jesus to be fully human at the same time that he was fully God. That the press of crowds, the demands of people, the ongoing criticism and assault that Jesus would have felt from the religious leaders meant that Jesus knew he needed time to get away to be with the Father. And I would say if you know what that feeling feels like. In your own life, that feeling of saying, God, I need to get away and spend time with you. Whether you are speaking words or whether you are just meditating on the reality of God, I do not care. But if you know what that feeling is like, it speaks to the reality of your faith and your relationship to God. But it's interesting, and there's something I do want to stress here this morning, is that when Jesus went to pray, he sought privacy. Did not seek out the street corner. In Luke 11, I think it's verse 1, after listening to Jesus pray, one of the disciples, it says one of them, said to Jesus, teach us to do what you just did. Teach us to pray. The verse goes this, and it came to pass that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, and this would have been an occasion where the disciples would have listened to him pray. After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. John taught his followers to pray, can you teach us? And I don't know how often the disciples would have listened in on Jesus as he prayed, but undoubtedly there was something about the prayers of Jesus that were so unlike the prayers of what I might call the professional religious people. Neither Jesus or the disciples considered the prayers of the religious leaders as examples to follow. In fact, throughout the Gospels, Jesus warns against religious-sounding prayer. And in fact, Jesus would say that is not prayer. That is a performance that's a public display. It's intended to bring glory to yourself. And so it's interesting to me that when the disciples asked him to pray, he did not say, well, go to your religious leaders, ask them. Or they did not say, listen to your religious leaders, try to do that. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And as I said, I, I, I don't want to jump into the actual prayer itself this morning. But I want us to think a little bit about the context here that comes before the Lord's Prayer. And there are a few words that I'm going to use to highlight what I think Jesus warned the disciples about and things that Jesus warns us about. One I simply called pretentious 
prayer. Prayer that somehow gives you a feeling of self-importance as you pray. The religious leaders were very good at that. Jesus warned against what I would call pious prayer. Prayers that sort of come from a self-righteous place. The religious leaders often spoke those kind of prayers. And thirdly, Jesus warned against prolonged public performance prayers. That somehow because you prayed for a long time, said a lot of things that sounded really quite spiritual. And Jesus said those are prayers of self-promotion. Don't pray like that. And we can read these warnings that are in Matthew 6, verse 1 to 7, where Jesus talks about both giving and about prayer. And then there's the Lord's Prayer. And then next comes this conversation about fasting. If and when you fast, don't do this. And these warnings, when I read them, these verses seem crystal clear in what they have to say. And we can read them, we can nod in approval and say, yeah. And then proceed to do exactly those same things within the church. At times, I I believe we have inadvertently fostered a reluctance to pray, even within the church, by highlighting both prolonged or spiritual-sounding public prayer. That we've missed the point that in many ways it's so easy in a sense to allow prayers to sort of bring glory to man instead of simply address God as Father. And people will say, well, I can't pray like that. I should probably keep quiet. It's wrong. There are other places in the New Testament where Jesus talks about coming to God as a child. That there should be a childlike quality to the prayers that we actually give to God, not a really super spiritual sounding phrases. The warnings that Jesus gave applied not only to prayer, they applied to the act of giving. They applied to the act of fasting. And it's interesting, the religious leaders did all those things. The religious leaders prayed, they gave alms, they fasted. In fact, they did all of those things, you might say, religiously. And Jesus said to his disciples, who were to become his church planters and the leaders of the church, Don't give like that. Don't pray like that. And don't fast like that. And these are the, these warnings are the bookends that wrap themselves around the beauty of the Lord's Prayer. 
And these warnings, I think, serve to contrast what can be an empty form of religion or an empty kind of religious practice against prayers that come because we have a relationship to God who allows us to call him Father. I don't know if Eugene Peterson ever has second thoughts about how he paraphrased Matthew chapter 6. And I was going to use it, but it was almost too strong. It all, the language almost seemed too blunt, but I would encourage you, uh, whether you have the message at home as a translation, or whether you can go online and look at it, if you read Matthew chapter 6 in Eugene Peterson, he speaks so powerfully about not allowing these things that we, are, we should do that are good things to become public displays. And he kind of uses this uh, heading for chapter 6, and he says simply, the world is not a stage. Don't perform. New American Standard uh, Version is um, kind of my tr- trusty Bible there, but I, I, I've been using it less and I've been using the New Living Translation more and more and more. But this morning, <coughs> excuse me, I want to read just the first section of Matthew 6 from the New American Standard. And as I was reading it this week at church, in this chapter, no less than 10 times. It says, do not. Do not do that. Do not do that. And so I kind of highlighted all those in my Bible there. So they kind of stick out every time I look at that page. It's such a sort of a clear warning, don't do that. Pray like this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, in the streets. Why? So that they can be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. What is that reward? That reward is simply the glory of whatever people who happen to see them might say, ooh, that was impressive. He says, that's your reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. As I read that this week, I was reminded again of the beauty of that expression, I think, within our own church. And I thought about the number of people that came to me before Christmas and said, Doug, I want to help. 
somebody. I have something I want to do to give away. I do not want people to know who it is that is giving it, but I want to give. Can you tell me where it needs to go? Those people are giving the way we're supposed to give. And it's a beautiful expression within the church. And then he goes on, he says, and when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. They have the attention of men. But when you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Some translations might say, go into your closet. Simply God saying, find a private place, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then there's the Lord's Prayer. And then there's another warning about fasting. And I might read that next week. And nestled in between the warnings, we have the simple beauty of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, pray instead this way. When it says that, it's not instructions for us that every time we pray, we're supposed to pray the Lord's Prayer. It is instruction to us that when we pray, maybe this gives us a good guideline as to what kind of things do we bring before God. I remember my daughter not long ago started to pray the Lord's Prayer on a very regular basis, and she asked that question, could we pray the Lord's Prayer can that be our prayer all the time? And in a way, it probably could be. It's a beautiful way the Lord's Prayer is sort of, I'll say, put together. Um, but it's meant to stand in stark contrast to what has come before it and what comes after it. It's about putting aside any pretenses it's about putting aside any thoughts of our own righteousness. Put aside any thought of prayer as a performance and instead find a private place. Show reverence for God and then simply begin to speak openly, humbly, honestly about the things that are on your heart and mind. I want to suggest that you don't go out and buy a book. And I bet many of us have books on prayer at home. Um, there are literally thousands, if not more, books on prayer. And I thought about that a bit, and I thought, 
Why do we need so many? How is it that the disciples could learn to pray openly and honestly before God without a library of instructions or formats or techniques or... And so I would say don't say, well, this is a time where we're talking about prayer. Let's go out and buy the best prayer book there is. I would say begin to pray. We need to talk with God knowing that he, he knows us, that he loves us in our weakness, in our sins, in our struggles, that God knows us and he asks us, come and pray to me as your father who is in heaven. God is perfect in all his ways, and I think it's so reassuring that he knows that we're not. Don't need to pretend. So I would say, perhaps, you know, whether it's this week, whether in fact you use this, um, I just want to encourage you pray. On the back <coughs> excuse me, of this card, it says, write your three prayer focuses for 2018. I don't actually want you to grab a pen and quickly write that, but I would encourage you to take it and think about it. And the one thing that uh, sort of came to my mind as I thought about this and I actually felt this week I need to make sure we've got enough of these. Um, that maybe, for me, the, the first aspect of prayer is about things in my life that I need to come to God about. What is it in me that I need to sort of write down and remind myself to pray about in my own life? So you might say, well, that sounds like self-centered prayer. In a way, it is. But it may also be prayer of repentance, prayer of confession, saying, God, I struggle with this. Would you help me? And number two, for me, I was thinking, maybe it's time for me to write down a specific prayer when I think in terms of my own family or my own extended family. Uh, do I need to become more diligent and consistent in bringing something, someone before God? Because I think part of the power of prayer is that when we begin to pray, God also begins to say to us, you know what, you maybe need to act. There's maybe something you need to do related to that prayer. And thirdly, I thought to pray for the church, to pray for Creekside. So perhaps hang on to this, give it some thought. I do ask you to pray for the church. Sean, I'm going to invite Sean and Mike to come back up, and I just want to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness to us that... Uh, 
you are our Father. Father, I pray that uh, both individually and as a church, we would simply find the freedom and even the desire to simply come before you, to lift up your name because you are God, and to make our requests known to you, or those things that are on our heart, bring those things to you because you're also our Father. Thank you for that. It's through Jesus that we have this amazing privilege, so thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.